We're going to be in Matthew 27 today. As I've said, if you don't have a Bible, there's one, should be one in front of you, down below in the seat in front of you, and if not, you can get it on your mobile app and bring it up, and uh, Matthew is the New Testament, so the second half of the Bible, first book in the New Testament, chapter 27, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26 today. The title that I've chosen for today for our message is, What Will You Do With Jesus? What will each one of us do with Jesus? And it really comes from Pilate's question in verse 22 of our text. And the point of our passage today is not just understanding and grappling with how the people of the first century interacted with Jesus or how they uh, dealt with him, but how each one of us personally will react to the truth of who Jesus is. I read a a, um, little quote this week from a pastor and author, Pastor Lee Eklov, and he said, years ago, I heard someone describe how steel tubes were made in the mills of western Pennsylvania. A snake of molten steel is poured out and then spun until by centrifugal force that steel opens from the inside out, forming a perfect seamless tube. When asked the secret of the process, the operator replied, it's the temperature of the metal. If it's too hot, it'll fly apart. If it's too cold, it won't open as it should. Unless you catch the molten moment, you can't make a perfect tube. Lee goes on to say that phrase, molten moment, has stuck with me ever since. And that's really what we want to talk about today is what are molten moments in your life and in my life? Molten moments are opportunities for either success or failure. Opportunities every day, every moment of our life, either to choose victory in God through Jesus or to fail epically by trying to do things in our own strength, in our own wisdom. And there are three main reactions that we're going to see today in our passage to Jesus and to the truth that he brought. And so let's dive in and look at that together. Matthew 27. Matthew writes, very early in the morning, meaning Friday morning, The leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Stop there for a moment. They're meeting again because they were meeting in the night, which was illegal. It wasn't binding, it wasn't legal, and they knew it. And so they're having a mock trial in the morning to kind of repeat what's already been decided. This is how unfair it is. Verse 2, then they bound him and led him away and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hung himself. The, the Greek word there for temper, temple is one of the innermost parts of the temple. So he's like sliding those in, kind of like as his plea, as his offering to God in remorse. Verse 5, uh, verse 6, the leading priest picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. It was okay for them to pay Judas and hire him to basically identify Christ and lead to his murder, but... They couldn't use this money for religious purposes because that would be wrong. It's funny how their ethics are here. Uh, Sad how their ethics are. 
Um, after some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field, and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called to this day the field of blood. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now, some of you that are Bible scholars or that have gotten debates with people that don't believe in the his historicity and the accuracy of the Bible will say that's not a quote from Jeremiah. It's a quote from Zechariah. And so the Bible is wrong at this point. But Scripture is doing what it does at so many points is oftentimes New Testament writers will quote more than one Old Testament passage. And what they always do is they will reference the major prophet, not the minor prophet. And what you need to know here is that bits of this prophecy are from both passages so it is not an accuracy but that's what's going on verse 11 though jesus was standing before pilate the roman governor are you the king of the jews the governor asked him jesus replied you've said it but when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him jesus remained silent don't you hear all of these charges that they're bringing against you pilate demanded but jesus made no response to any of the charges much to the governor's surprise. Verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Verse 18 says, for he knew well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Pilate knows that Jesus is really no threat to Roman rule. He is a religious leader. He's a threat to the religious elite uh, of the Jewish community because he has stolen their attention. He's stolen away their popularity, and he knows that this is all just a sham. Verse 19, just then as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders were persuading the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So here's the pastors, here's the religious leaders, knowing that the crowd on its own is going to say, yeah, fry Barabbas, that guy deserves it. But instead, they're encouraging the crowd to ask for Jesus and for his death. How horrible, how completely horrible. So the governor asked again, which of these do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. And so he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus to be flogged with a lead-tipped whip, and then turned over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Not my responsibility, but beat him up, you know. We're going to talk about what, what horrible leadership that is and uh, just all of the craziness that's going on here. 
three main reactions in our passage. The first one that I want to deal with involves regret. And Judas is really the one who, who portrays this for us in our passage. Regret or remorse. Judas regretted or felt remorse for his actions. Verse 3 of our text. Former senator and presidential candidate, candidate John McCain said it well. He said, you can live with pain, you can live with embarrassment, but remorse is an awful companion. The shocking that, discovery that you are less than you pretended to be. Many believe that Judas really loved Jesus, and even though he was an opportunist, even though he was along for the ride, even though he was stealing money out of the treasury and using it for his own purposes, even though he wanted to be part of a movement, there are those that believe that he sincerely believed that Jesus was going to deliver the Jews, and he was trying to force Jesus' hand. He was trying to force Jesus' hand by getting him to prove that he was the Messiah and to, and to get the, the Romans to leave. But his molten moment, really, if you read through the Gospels, was at uh, Mary and Martha's home when, when Mary anointed Jesus' feet. And he said, she has done this for my burial. And he realized right then and there that, that Jesus was not going to fulfill the plan. He was intending to die. And the text in the Gospel says that right after that, he went to the chief priests and the elders to discuss uh, betraying Jesus and giving him away. That was... His opportunity to either submit to God's plan or to try and oppose it, and he chose to oppose it. When it says in our text in verse 3 that he felt remorse, it's the Greek word for a change of mind. It's a little subtle difference from metanoia, which talks of real repentance, which is not only a change of mind, but a change of heart as well. A change of mind and a change of heart that results in changed actions, that results in a different type of living. And Matthew's gospel is the only one that tells us that he felt remorse, that he felt regret, and that uh, he returned the money to the religious leaders. Only Matthew talks about that. But as Joe pointed out so well in our Friday morning men's Bible study, the difference between Judas feeling remorse that led to salvation and what happened in his case is that ultimately Judas had never followed Jesus as Messiah, as his Savior. He didn't feel the need to be forgiven of his sins. And so now, even though he's regretting, he's remorseful, he knows he betrayed an innocent man, he, he's not coming to God as Savior, as Messiah, because that isn't even in his category of thinking. And so he's just a depressed, sad, disillusioned man with nobody to turn to, and he takes his life. He's in essence saying that you did not fulfill who I thought you were. And, you know, there are many a follower of Christ that ends up turning away from Jesus because at some point in their life, Jesus doesn't fulfill their expectations of who they thought he was and what he should be doing. He doesn't fulfill their game plan. And Jesus is like, I'm fulfilling the, the divine game plan. Like, I am not a genie to be manipulated. This is about God's plan. It's about the divine uh, commission. So Judas, in essence, was saying that I've sinned so great that my sin is beyond your ability to forgive me and to redeem me. Now, granted, none of the disciples had a clue that Jesus was actually going to raise from the dead. It took all of them by surprise. And so Judas isn't any less lacking in faith than the rest of them. But by taking his life, 
He's saying, I'm a lost cause. And the, the message of the gospel is that no one is a lost cause. That no one is beyond God's ability to restore and to uh, rescue and to redeem. And so that's what's going on here. And the best verse that I, I think so beautifully uh, illustrates this is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. You can look it up later. But it says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's exactly the sorrow within Judas and what it produced in his life. I like the way that the New Living Translation puts it. For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. And there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. Any type of sorrow in our life that gets us to examine our sin and see it for what it is and recant of that and repent of that and turn to God, that's a good sorrow. But the kind of sorrow that causes us to just wallow in our filth and our, our sinfulness and just kind of do nothing and just kind of be immobilized for the rest of our life because we're such a mess, we're such a wreck, we're such a victim, that, that doesn't honor God and that doesn't help anybody. And that is not the kind of sorrow that the Bible desires for us to have. Author Randy Alcorn compares remorse to sinkholes. I like this. He says, have you ever seen a sinkhole? Cars are parked on a street one day and everything appears normal. Then one day the asphalt caves in and the cars disappear into a gigantic hole. And everybody says, that came out of nowhere. But they're wrong. The hole appears suddenly, but the process that led to it has gone on for many years. The underground erosion was invisible, but it was there all along. Sinkholes remind us of two things. First, something can look good on the outside when underneath major problems have been going on for years and disaster is about to happen. Second, our lives are affected by little choices that have a cumulative effect that can result in either moral strength or moral disaster. And I read that and I thought, molten moment. These little choices we make every day can either result in victory or in epic failure. And it's, it's the opportunity whether we surrender to God and let the Holy Spirit work through us or whether we go headstrong into situations and think that we're our own Savior and we're going to solve things on our own. Remorse builds through seemingly small, um, careless decisions that we make every day. A lack of follow-through. Moral laxity. Lacking the courage to speak out. And character flaws that to everybody else are invisible, but we know that they're there and we never address them. And we allow these things to build and to grow and to accumulate. And then one day... The bottom falls out from under our life. We think, how in the world did that happen? How did I get here? And it wasn't a sudden tragic thing. It was, it was years in the making. And we know it. We know it better than anyone. I was incredibly humbled and convicted this week by a story that I read by an author, Paul Metzger. He has this book called Connecting Christ. And he, re he retells the story of the friendship between the Jewish writer Elie Wiesel, and French Christian writer Francois Mauriac. It says, while in Auschwitz, Wiesel was torn 
from his mother and sisters and forced to watch his father get beaten to death by Nazi guards. After the war, he chose to keep silent about his traumatic experiences. But as a young writer, he had a chance to interview Muriak, a prominent Christian writer and former leader in the French resistance movement. Though he, rejected, uh, though he respected Moriac, Wiesel arrived at Moriac's apartment with an ulterior motive. He wanted Moriac to help him meet the Prime Minister of France in order to boost his emerging writing career. In a 1996 interview, here's how Wiesel recounts their first meeting. He said, Moriac was an old man then, but when I came to him, he agreed to see me. We met and had a painful discussion. The problem was that Muriak was in love with Jesus. He was the most decent person I had ever met in that field. As a writer and as a Christian writer. Honest, a sense of integrity, and he was in love with Jesus. He spoke only of Jesus. Whatever I would ask, Jesus. Finally, when he had said Jesus again, I could take it no longer. And I was discourteous, which I regret to this day. Mr. Muriak, ten years or so ago, I saw children, hundreds of Jewish children, who suffered more than Jesus ever did on his cross. And we don't talk about that. I felt all of a sudden so embarrassed. I closed my notebook and went to the elevator, but he ran after me. He pulled me back and he sat me down in his chair, and I in mine. And he began weeping. I have rarely seen an old man weep like that. And I felt like such an idiot. I felt like a criminal. I didn't know what to do. We stayed like that, he weeping, and I closed in my own remorse. And then at the end, he simply said, you know, maybe you should talk about it. He took me to the elevator and embraced me. And that year... I began writing Nights, my novel about the Holocaust. And it was translated from Yiddish into French, and I sent a copy to him. And we were very, very close friends until his death. Later in his life, Bissell declared that it was Moriac, the man who declared himself in love with Christ, who influenced him to share his story and become a writer. I read that. And I was so convicted because I think, you know, my, my one regret in my Christian life is not, it's, it's our point from last week's sermon, which hit me more probably than any of you. And it had to do with proclaiming the name of Jesus. Because friends, Throughout most of my life, I have proclaimed programs. I have proclaimed events, and I have lifted up church. And it haunts me to think how many people have rejected Jesus because they didn't want a program. They didn't want an event, and they could do without church. And my challenge to you, my challenge to myself, is that if we spend the rest of our life never inviting anybody to church or a program or event, but we simply talk about Jesus and lift him up, we will be doing well. We will be doing very well. And that's my challenge. And as I read about this author that could only speak of Jesus, that was known 
for being in love with Jesus. I just thought, God, I want to be that person. It's easy to talk about Jesus at church when you know your audience and you know that most people here are in love with Jesus as well. We may not be good at showing it all the time, but we love him and we love his word. But that's the challenge, to not have regrets. power of proclamation like we talked about last week the power of proclaiming the name of jesus you know i I thought about this question for a moment as i was preparing this week and the question is does god ever have regrets does god ever have regrets it seems blasphemous to ask but if you say no you'd be wrong and listen to this short excerpt from genesis 6 then the people began to multiply in the earth and the daughters were born to them And the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. And the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. And in the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. And whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and the famous warriors of ancient times. And the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And so the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth, and it broke his heart. But fast forward, thank God that his sorrow, his remorse, his broken heart led him to redeem us and not destroy us. That it led to the cross and it led to him purchasing our life and our salvation and our eternity rather than just wiping us off the face of the universe that he had every right to do. Regret. That's one response. The second response that I see in our passage is deflection. And Pilate so (coughs) illustrates this. Deflection of leadership. We see it from the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the elders. Verse 1 They took counsel together against Jesus. Verses 12 and 13, they testified against Jesus. Verse 20, they persuaded the people against Jesus. They were dead set against Jesus. Not about truth, but about persuading, conferring, testifying, and giving false counsel against Jesus. And then in verse 24, we see the climax where Pilate abdicates his responsibility. He deflects his responsibility. I was looking at verses 11 to 23. And the striking thing about Pilate in these verses, 12 short verses, is that until he finally renders a verdict, all he does is ask questions. I counted seven questions in 12 short verses. And friends, those questions are not trying to determine what's best. Those questions are this. Which way is the wind blowing and how do I stay on the right side? I have no desire to bring about truth all i want to do is to not cause a riot here and to maintain what little popularity i can have because i'm already in trouble with rome for being a bad leader and he knew it and he saw it was talking to me ahead of time and said you know how does a man who washes his hands of guilt and of responsibility then uh send somebody off to be flogged 
to get the, the, the 39 lashes, one short of death, because they had proven time and time again that when you wrap that lead tip uh, whip around people, then pulled and flesh came out, that 40 times would kill somebody, but 39 would leave them just barely hanging on. How do you absolve yourself of that? And that, you know, there is no answer. You don't. You can wash your hands, but you're still guilty. I, I read about a church that was doing um, practices of the cross before on Good Friday, and they had a hand washing station, and they had secretly put this chemical in that as people washed their hands, their hands turned red. And they couldn't get it off. And drying whatever they stayed red. But it was a reminder of, we are all guilty. And friends, please understand that, that this is not about Jewish people that said, we'll take responsibility for him, us and our children. And so it's their fault. And all of the belief that, oh, that's why Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And on and on and on. The message of the Bible is that each and every one of us is guilty for Christ's death. He went to Calvary for you and for me. Not for any particular race, not for any particular horrible, sinful criminal, but for each one of us. That's what led him. And Pilate deflects responsibility. He shuns, and, and look where that leads him in verse 24. He saw that he was getting nowhere. When you as a leader are always trying to choose the path of least resistance, or what you think will bring about popularity, or... The, uh, the, the admiration of the people, it, it always gets you nowhere. And it doesn't accomplish what really needs to be done. And that's the problem with Pilate's leadership. I read this week a story. It said, have you ever wondered whether a giant asteroid might be headed for our planet, like the one that may have wiped out the dinosaurs? Well, the planet Jupiter is our first line of defense says Alan Boss, an astrophysicist at the Carnegie Institution in Washington. He says it's somewhere around 99.9% efficient at throwing dangerous space junk, asteroids and meteorites, back out into interstellar space. Because Jupiter is 318 times heavier than Earth, its mass creates a huge gravitational field that acts like a giant cosmic vacuum cleaner, drawing the junk that floats into the gravitational field toward it and away from other planets. Jupiter displayed its protective power six years ago when a monster comet broke into fragments and bombarded the planet Jupiter with more destructive power than all the atomic bombs on Earth. Not all space particles get deflected by Jupiter, but living in Jupiter's gravitational field minimizes the destructive forces that enter the Earth's atmosphere. Considering Jupiter's protective role, the ancient Romans unknowingly named the mighty planet well. In Old Latin, Jupiter means sky father. And I thought about that and I thought, that is such a picture of God. We have no idea every single day, every moment of our life, how much harm and judgment and calamity he deflects from our path and from wiping us out and striking us. That's exactly what God does for us. How beautiful it is that he is the eternal one, the eternal sky father who protects us and looks over us. I love these words in scripture that say, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
That word for bore is a, is a root word in Greek that means to carry or to lift up, and it speaks of an altar. And I thought, what a beautiful picture, that as Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, he was not only the altar, but the sacrifice, his physical body. What a beautiful picture. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Who wrote that for us? Anybody? Do you know which book in the New Testament that comes from? Peter's epistle. How beautiful that somebody who denied his Lord and wandered and strayed got it right and understood what it means to be brought back, what it means to be rescued, what it means to be reclaimed and recommissioned and put back into service for the Lord. For we were continually straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the shepherd and guardian of our souls powerful. The third reaction that we can have in our passage is to accept. The people accepted responsibility in verse 25. When Pilate turned the responsibility over to the Jews, verse 24, they readily accepted and they cried out, his blood be upon us and our children. Probably one of the most horrifying things they could have ever said. And, you know, any, any parent here, any adulterer cannot grasp how you would ever say that. You know, yeah, let it be on me, but not my kids, you know, but they're so hell-bent on Jesus being crucified and being eliminated that, yeah, let it happen. We'll take responsibility. Our children will take responsibility. And, again, that is, that is in no way, shape, or form a biblical answer to anti-Semitism. This is every single one of us taking responsibility for the death of Jesus for his crucifixion. A few days earlier, the same people in Jerusalem who shouted, Hosanna, at Jesus' entry, now they're the same ones who are saying, crucify him, crucify him. And greatly uh, to the, uh, by the help of the chief priests and the elders who persuaded the people to ask for Jesus and not Barabbas. How horrible that is. You know, when I think about the human condition, human nature, we all have a habit of giving our, getting ourselves into situations that are beyond our ability to fix or to solve. We ignorantly accept responsibility for things which we have no solution for and over which we have no power, and we just blindly go into stuff. And God, by his grace, rescues us and, and meets us and puts out his hand. And that's why the message of the gospel is good news. The good news is that Jesus has accepted responsibility for my sin and for your sin. We've said this so many times that religion is about what men and women do to try and earn God's favor. The gospel is about what God has already done through Jesus Christ to declare you righteous and holy and forgiven. There's no better news in all of life. It's not what we do, it's what has already been done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through him. John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming for that first time when he was out baptizing people, he said, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does God deal with our sin? He takes it away. And that Greek word, again, means he lifts it up. It's the word, again, that he lifts it up to place it on an altar. He lifts up our sin, puts it on an altar. He is the altar. He is the sacrifice. It's taken care of once and for all. Past, present, future. No more guilt before our Father. As we close today, I want you to think about the molten moments of your life. Perhaps what those have been. Um, Jeff Sponsiller texted me this morning and was talking about how he was reading today in Proverbs 16. And uh, this, is, this is absolutely awesome. Look at how this is totally our passage today. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies and who spreads strife among brothers. Jeff was saying, in, in, the chief priests and the elders did all seven of those. You know, how can we... Uh, live, uh, what will we do with Jesus? Uh, the best thing we can do with Jesus is to live a life that honors him, an, a life of authenticity, a life of surrender, and one that doesn't engage in stuff like that. But think about the moments in your life where maybe you've had a molten moment, a moment where you could have succeeded or failed, and, and which we can all think of times when we succeeded and times when we failed. And maybe you're in the, minute, the, the middle of a molten moment right now. Maybe you're being forged in the fire right now. And we need to remember in these times that even though failure seems certain so often, there's an equal and even a greater opportunity to succeed and find victory in Jesus. And as I shared today about regret, you know, we all have regret over sin, but regret isn't just over horrible things that we've done, but it's things that we left undone. And for me... My biggest regrets will be times where I ignored the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't do what I know God wanted me to do. And we each one need to examine regret because regret builds up and it leads to a life of remorse and second guessing. And it steals our confidence and our conviction. And it's really hard to be, you know, pro proclaimers of good news if we're defeated, whipped puppies. The second is deflection. Each one of us has decisions we need to make right now in our life, and it doesn't do any good to kick the can down the road. It doesn't do any good to put that responsibility on someone else, to just hope that things get better and walk away from it. We have to own things. We have to take responsibility. We have to confront when necessary. And the last reaction of our text is to accept. And maybe there's consequences of our sin that we need to come to terms with and accept that I made my bed and now I need to sleep in it or I need to be part of trying to restore things and heal things and reconcile things. But the greatest decision of all is to accept Christ and to accept the free gift of salvation that he offers you through the gospel. And friends, as we come to the communion table today, that is the good news of scripture, the good news of the gospel, that you can never do enough, but you don't have to because Christ has already done it for you.